לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Shalom and welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk by Rabbi Elliot Malamud. Highland Park, New Jersey, the Highland Park, conservative Temple Congregation on Shemet. Joining me my good friends, Rabbi Barry Chester at the Salman Shekhar Day School of Long Island and Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky on Sheikh Chesed in New York City. We're recording this on the 103rd day of the war, 103 days that uh, the hostages are held in Gaza. We pray for them. We pray that they be released speedily and returned to their families. Lechek mishpichotechem. That's the Mishaberach that we uh, say every Shabbat. Um, such a, it's a very powerful, powerful image. And of course, the observance of 100 days over the last um, couple of days, uh, many, many moving moments there. And of course, our thoughts uh, are with them. And we pray for their release. We pray that uh, the soldiers on the IDF will come home safely as soon as possible. We are reading Parshat Bo this week, Parshat Bo. It's an interesting hey. parsha. I, just, I, I want to turn to you, Barry, for a second. Just, it's like we're starting a different kind of movement here. It's, 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 there's, there's, it's, it's a different parsha, and what, what are some identifying features of this parsha that that speak to you or strike you? So I guess you know we have the end of the plagues, but there's a kind of before and after. So the tenth plague is described, and then we have a lengthy discussion in chapter 12 of Pesach, what the rabbi is referred to as Pesach Mitzrayim and Pesach Dorot, how Pesach would be observed in Egypt and then later how it would be observed by future generations. And then we come back to the narrative um, with a, after a brief discourse about, about the felon. And, you know, there's a lot of setups, I guess we would say, literary setups in Exodus. So when we get later in the book, we'll have the preparation to build the Mishkan and the actual building of the Mishkan separated by the incident of the Golden Calf. Um, and I, I think it lends us, or leads us to think about the role of storytelling in shaping our national narrative. That the story is really the key. And... Um, I was thinking a little bit earlier, there's a kind of co-optation because Pesach, as it's described in our Parsha, is originally a home ritual. And it's wherever you live, that's where you make your Korban Pesach and have your meal. And then it becomes a temple ritual. But after the destruction of the temple with the introduction of the Seder, it becomes a home ritual once again. Because I think what is the most important part of Pesach is the story and how we participate year after year, generation after generation, in our great national saga of redemption. It's so interesting because, you know, when you think about the um, Passover experience in the temple, uh, I'm not sure that the story was the, the, the major element as much as the, the, 
the act of sacrifice that everybody, I mean, everybody had to come and, and do this. Uh, and did they do this with a with a kind of Seder? They did it, they did the sacrifice, and they may have had um, you know, a proto-Seder. I mean, even the, the evidence in, in, in the Haggadah is Zechalamikta, well, Hillel. Hillel Hillel eats the well, the, this is the one piece, but but right. uh but the you know, even in um even in the temple piece, um there's a there's a uh, a little um uh I mean, they're they're in Exodus 12 here and including um when you know describing the the thing I, I guess this is in Devarim. um it says in the morning you will you will uh, leave and go back to your tents that's the bar which which suggests that they they did something they stayed up all night but I, yeah, that's divine. But but I think that the symbolic power of the description here in twelve of painting the blood, and you shall say this is the offering. It, it really reinforces that this is a demonstrative ritual that is supposed to bring something into their heads and bring something into their hearts. So whether it's story in the way that we you know think of like national saga or or epic poetry, or whatever, it is an absorption of a covenantal message. You know, it, it's not just lunch. It's not just dinner. It's not just shawarma. It's shawarma plus important message. Well, Birkat Amazon. But what yeah. I would add is that in the temple, apparently, they would have the meal, they gather for the picture, and then they go home. <laughs> so so I, I want to just add one little footnote here which is the an often overlooked little phrase here is that so Moshe is is giving these 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 instructions to the people he's telling them exactly to do take a, a a lamb on the 10th day of the month and hold on to it and keep it there and then prepare it in the way that we 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 all know slaughter it put the blood on the doorpost etc etc and it's a whole way of uh, preparing the ritual roasted the lamb eat you were to eat the meal uh you know with 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 uh matzot and marim and and then the last thing that happens is the people receive this instruction they bow down they they honor the the instructions now i'm pointing this out because um we had last week you know this this wonderful you know um, speech that Moses gives, where the people can't hear them. Right? There's they're so downtrodden and overworked; they don't even bother to listen. But previously, when Moshe came and they and told the people that they were going to be rescued, they have the same reaction. So here, there is a sense that they're they're ready. They're going. To, they're honoring the commandment and they're receiving the commandment by by worshiping or by by not by worshiping by by showing an act of reverence okay so so let's let's go right into then chapter 12 verse 29 because i mean it 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 reads such a beautiful story it's it's a great moment of storytelling it was in the middle of the night, okay? And we're not saying in the middle of the night. It's not that. It's, <laughs> it's in the middle of the night. Da, 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 da. 
goose flesh, just saying this. God smote all of the firstborn of the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who was sitting on his throne, even the firstborn in captivity, even those who were in jail, and also firstborn of the animals. And so it's it's a moment of terror, a moment of great, great terror. Um, and I have to say that just yeah, on, the, on the level of, with all due reverence here, V'chol B'chor Behema is kind of like a, a, a clunk note at the end of that beautiful sentence. And so it was in the middle of the night. I can't say it with the great power of the Elliot Matter. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> Basically, yeah. the, the rhythm, the, the evenness of the number of syllables, like this actually scans as poetry. And yes. then somebody goes, and you know what? The cows too. Like, well, you... I think this ties up a little bit with chapter 13, which calls for the redemption of the firstborn of the cattle. Sure. And it's a sign that God is all consuming. That his dominion does not just extend to human beings, but to their livestock as well. I, I think we have... Uh very little appreciation of the role of the firstborn in antiquity and that the firstborn was the prerogative of the deity and the firstborn was the prerogative of, of Pharaoh here. We kind of worked some of that out in the book of Breshit. And here God is asserting himself to, to, take, to take what is the, the, that which makes Pharaoh Pharaoh uh, away from him. All of the 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 support that he gets it's it's he's pharaoh is entitled to every firstborn as the deity of egypt and by taking them out of the picture completely in such terror and destruction he removes all power away from pharaoh at the same time um i would i would say that all of that i mean i'm i'm just i'm, I'm really kind of just Complaining about the disrupt, disrupt, disruption of the poetic cadence, yes. okay. and 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 also though, I mean, okay, yes, the in fact the um, story of the makot, the plagues, was not only in the human realm; it was against the agricultural realm, it was against the animal realm too. So yeah, I got that, um, and everything that you're saying does make sense macro, but. I think that, every, that the the thing that you're saying, you know, about about undermining all sense of power, majesty, pre preeminence that is the paro figure, could have been accomplished without striking down the cattle. But I think that you are right, whichever one of you guys said this, that here in this passage in the Torah in 13, we are going to talk about the redemption of the, First, the, that's the, very, yeah. the firstborn animals, and so this little. These which is the words that I'm saying, I think are clunky. They do make a, a connection between what what is going to also be a new ritual mitzvah. 
Let me let me ask you what you think then of the next verse, which is Vayakom Paro Laila. He gets up in the middle of the night. There's a great scream in Egypt. He ain't by the share ain't made because there's no house in which there is no death. That that is death is visited every single household. I, I want to just start with Vayakom Paro Laila. That is to say, it in in the in the storytelling of this, there is a split screen, right? That what is happening in the Israelite world is that they are slaughtering their animals. They've painted the 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 doorposts. They're sitting and waiting to roast the the fire, the the animal over the fire. Um, they're preparing to. They're 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 dressed up, and Pharaoh's asleep. Okay, and the other screen is Pharaoh's asleep. He's he's and it, what it suggests is that he is detached from that whole story. And he is asleep. He, and it's not that he's pretending not to know anything. He is decidedly detached from from their drama. And then he's he's woken up in the middle of the night, uh, and and being told that that you're under attack, basically. Well, I, I think that there is um, perhaps something something else going on here because there's an irony here that the mashchit, the destroyer that comes, is described in the Torah as a physical presence. And when death enters each of these house, houses, it's a physical presence. And it will stir people who are sleeping because they can feel it. Right? It's not just that they're sleeping through it, it's that something has altered their reality of their home and they know that something terrible has just happened. Well, they're screaming. There's a great scream. Right, but what I would suggest is that what wakes Pharaoh is not the scream, but the presence of death in his house. So, so this and is, the irony this is, is, of course, is that death is the absence of life, which announces itself with the presence. It's sort so of the is, counterpart to God's kavod. So this is a real, um, you know, this is a, a really scary movie, right? Like, like it's it's not just, it's it's not just the absence of life, like the, the palpable presence of death. We always, by the way, tell the story that Pharaoh is a firstborn, and we we have this, you know, even in the in the commentaries, we were talking earlier about the the passage in which Pharaoh asked Moshe for a blessing, like, you know, before we started it's recording. What? Well, yeah, coming up, and Rashi says, you know, I'm a firstborn, and I need some protection here, and, and yet that sort of doesn't work on the plot level, because. I mean, either firstborn means every single peter rechem, the thing that opens every womb, human or animal, and it's just it's just ontologically true. It's part of their being, and the and the mashchid comes and they die. In which case, Pharaoh should have died. Or maybe it means that there's a firstbornness that maybe lapses upon reaching adulthood or something like that. And this is all children who are being killed. Which, by the way, as we as we are living in through you know terrible events and thinking about thinking about children who are victims of war going on. It's, it's just agonizing uh, to think that. Right. Think what that I would is, say, Jeremy, is that what makes Pharaoh not the firstborn is that his father is dead already. That the firstborn that is killed is a firstborn who has a living father. Okay. Well, that would make sense then. At some level, the 
It's not that when you reach adulthood, it's when you become the, the not the oldest generation, there could be other generations, but if, you, if your own parent dies, then you have to be the, that makes a Bechor, a firstborn, a firstborn of a living person. Yes, and that's what the tragedy is here, is because everyone is burying a child. You have to have somebody who loves you as a firstborn child. Right, so, you have to have that someone, a parent bury you in order to make it a plague. If if Pharaoh is indeed a firstborn himself and he is spared, then then there's an amnesty here for for the king. I'm thinking of this uh, the beautiful story where King Saul uh, is matched up against uh, Amalek and spares Agag. And you know the, the way that we commonly teach that story is that he has a bit of rachmanis on well, a fellow professional king. courtesy. It's a professional courtesy. Look, the whole point of of the Exodus, at least as it was stated, is Laman Teda, so that you will know, right? God is doing all of these plagues on Egypt so that you will know. And the there is there has to be a moment where Pharaoh is alive to recognize and to know that that he's just a human being. That right, God... but it also the death of his son breaks his dynastic chain as well. Indeed. Because he cannot bequeath the kingdom to his firstborn. But it never it never tells us anything. It never gives us any humanity to Pharaoh uh, that that he reacts to the death of his own firstborn, right? Be but it does say here, right? So so the narrator is very skillful here. The narrator is saying that that firstborn has been killed. So therefore, the loss would be incurred by Pharaoh, and you would expect. You know, a a a human reaction, a human cry at the death of his firstborn child, and you don't have that here. Um, That's actually a great observation. And by the way, I think that pasuk instantiates Barry's point. It, it's it's not the first about the, the firstborn means somebody who has a, a parent who would mourn for a firstborn. It's the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, and the firstborn of the captive. Um, it's not like a statement about one's ontological birth order or some, something like that. Uh, it's it's the it's the in the very tightly packed verse disrupted by the clause at the end. That very tightly packed verse you have that every single household has a loss. Ain bait asher ain shamet. There's no there's no household, and bait here doesn't mean the structure. It means the household. There's no clan. That is not going to have to bury somebody. It doesn't. It doesn't tell us how they are killed, how they are, how how they meet their end. You know. Um, and, well, it says earlier that the mashchit will come and visit them. And visit them. So does he slaughter them? Does he? Is it the, is it the them? Does he... It's like the Dementors in Harry Potter. That's that's what I'm. Ima I'm imagining <laughs> that some, you know, some uh, malevolent. Soul sucking force. He gives them the Vulcan, you know. I think in the movie it's green. <laughs> All in, right. In, so then, in, wait, but in, which movie? Um, Prince of Egypt. Prince of Egypt. That's a much better than Cecil B. DeMille. He calls them. They're in, they're in the middle of the Korban Pesach. And he calls them. For some people. For some people, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go into my own interpretation here. You've heard it all from me. That it, I don't think they got to eat it. It was, He says, get out of here. 
גם אתם, גם בני ישראל, לכו עבדו את אדוני כדברכם. Go worship God, that's what you wanted to do. Go, go, take everything. גם צונכם, take your sheep. גם בקרכם, take your cattle. ככו, אשר דיברתם, take everything that you said you would. ולכו, move. וברכתם גם אותי. And bless me. Okay, now I'm giving the, uh, a plain reading here. Bless me. But it doesn't it does seem odd so Barry I want you to give us your reading of this and and then Jeremy and I will object to it <laughs> so in the book of job uh mrs job at one point actually at two points says uh to her husband that you should curse God and die that that's the responsible moral position in the wake of the calamities that have been inflicted on job but the verb that's used is To mean curse is berach to bless or to praise and it occurred to me while he's reading this that to think that Pharaoh is asking for a blessing after dispatching the entire Israelite population and and uh, property seemed off to me and so it occurs to me that maybe what it really is is the euphemistic language that we see in the book of job and that he's recognizing now that With all the firstborn in Egypt dead that he has actually been cursed and that's why he's sending them off so your 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 grammar of that would be go worship God as you said take everything uh as you have cursed me yeah as or now you have cursed me now okay yes, now you have cursed me all right so I want I want to go with with um the the meaning of berachtem that its intention is to I want something from you I want a parting I want a parting blessing from you and and here I want to put the layer of uh, grace on this that that they they've had this um conflict for 10 plagues now where Pharaoh has not uh, given any respect to Moshe and uh, denied on you know almost every occasion uh you know there are a couple of reversals there whatever we don't have to go into it but but now that there's parting, There, there's a need of, of, of a kind of etiquette the etiquette of of equalization where where the 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 vanquished turns to the victor and says I need some grace from you I need I need a gift from you I need some way because what they're really co- trying to communicate what Pharaoh's trying to communicate is I want to be equalized again to you and I use the analogy of at the end of the Stanley Cup you know the the The, the winning team and the losing team uh you know line up in middle in the in the middle of the arena in the middle of the ice and they 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 shake hands with each other and the game would not be complete without without that it's a moment of grace and a moment that equalizes and shows respect and then of course in the course of shaking their hands they they all you know hug each other respect each other etc and we have several examples of that we talked about the Um, you know the 75th anniversary of the Gettys of, of the Battle of Gettysburg where the 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 blue and the gray side the north and the south they they reenact Pickett's charge and instead of killing each other 75 years these are 90 year old men who embrace each other it's very very moving and there are other examples of that and so so what what I what I want to read in here is that Pharaoh is is soliciting Moses for this grace and of course, it's uh there's a sense of revulsion I have a sense of revulsion at this because because he has been so cruel so 
what you're suggesting, I think, Elliot, is that this is the one place where Pharaoh comes off as a human being. Indeed, yes. But it, I, where I might quibble with you is that going back to the king of Amalek, Agag, there is no similar ceremony there. We could say that Saul tried to equalize things with his um, saving the king. Um, but, you know, that king was destined to die. And it may be that Pharaoh doesn't really get a chance to become an equal because that's the whole point of the story yeah. is that he always thought he was on a higher plane than he actually was. Yeah. I feel like the, um, the, we get caught up on the word of equalizing, um, you know, like when you, when you read about like in psychological literature and stuff, which I, you know, read around the high holidays, what, what is the dynamic of apology? Um, if somebody has hurt you, um, you know, you uh, apologize and that restores, you have diminished the person you have hurt. If you apologize, you enable the person to sort of rehabilitate sure. a little bit. Um, Pharaoh is obviously in the wrong here. Um, and and when he says, gam oti, which I also think means bless me, not, not curse me, and grammatically I think it works better that way as well as, as semantically works better, um, I, I think he I don't know about I don't know about the equalizing is the key thing, but I, I do think that he's in need of help. And the, the, the scene that we're talking about here, um, Moses and the Israelites are headed for a, an act of worship. They have said we want to go serve serve God, we want to celebrate God, we want to take why can't you do it in Egypt? Well, we're going to sacrifice a lot of animals. you guys worship these animals that won't go well. Uh, we're going to go out and worship and we're going to meet the master of the world. And Pharaoh, who has been just, you know, he 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 entered a conflict he could not win. Uh, he started off by saying, I don't know, who is this God? I don't know. I've never heard of him. Uh, and I'm not, you know, I'm not going to send, send B'nai Israel out. Okay, he's been completely and utterly trampled. And now in an act of, uh, I, I agree with what you said, Barry, about this is maybe not the very only because at a certain point in the plagues he says i'm wrong i'm wrong but now at the final time he says i'm wrong i'm wrong and i am not in control and i need help and so we the the good guys in the story um you know you can transpose it to to uh contemporary things you know about hamas you can think about the nazis you can think about whoever um if, if one of your mortal enemies came to you and said listen now i'm in terrible straits i need help I, I do find it a little hard to summon up the 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 beneficent human response, but I think that that's what Pharaoh is asking. Uh, you 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 God's going to take your call. My kingdom has been destroyed. My children are dead. We have no more agriculture. We got nothing. Just please help help us a little bit. And whether you know this this story is going to go on one more parsha in which Pharaoh is going to say to himself. Oh, wait a minute. I got to try to trace him down one more time. And that's going to be the final, final, final. But at this point, it seems like it's the end. And this guy who showed zero vulnerability, showed tremendous akshanut, tremendous stubbornness, at least for this one instance, says, I'm vulnerable and I need some help. And so what, what what's interesting is that there's silence afterwards. There's no there's no response to this. And, and Moses doesn't respond. Aaron doesn't respond. Uh, and I... I think there's a takeaway there, which is, I can't, I can't, I can't give you what you need here. 
or at least the text is silent and allowing us to interpret, you know, the possibility that, that you're saying, for the cruelty that you've inflicted on us, the slavery, and for the tyranny that you have uh, demonstrated and your absolute power, uh, there there is no forgiveness. I can't forgive you. Um, many, many uh, Hebrew children are lying at the bottom of the Nile because of you. Uh, I can't... Uh, I can't. I can't bring myself to that. And I think that that you know we we, we do have to take that into consideration. You know, uh, everybody's talking about the day after, the day after, the day after. What do you do the day after? And and I mean, far be it for any of us to to really offer uh, any any kind of thing. But but here you'll have a population, you know, uh, and 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 people uh, who aided, abetted, and also people who perpetrated some of the greatest crimes against. Jews in the last 80 years and what do you do with that how do you know you it's it's not that you can let everyone go I mean part of the the, the internal conversation now in Israel is you know well what if what if what if it was prisoners for hostages you know and the the sense of of I don't know rupture but but we're, we're moving beyond what we wanted to talk about here which is so we we get into the the uh, the final statements of how this is going to be commemorated and how people are going to remember this. And I want to go back, Jeremy, to to the idea of ritual functioning as a way to tell a story. And maybe we can conclude with that idea because, you know, the ritual of Passover is so powerful. I mean, we're sitting here in January and, and, and you know, read these parshas and I have a little bit of tongue-in-cheek with... When we read it, because it's it's basically saying, you got to get ready for Pesach now. You got to get ready for Passover. <laughs> okay, uh, but um, it is the most powerful ritual I think that's observed in the Jewish home through the course of the year. It is um, to narrate a story, and it's a set of rituals. And just talk about that for a second. Ritual functions as a way to tell a story, and and how that idea, ritual, telling a story. Um, can can be, you know, uh, unlock a lot of the way that we understand rituals. Take, for example, you know, life cycle rituals. Take, for example, you know, any of the rit- you know, any of the prayer rituals or any of the other. I mean, this is the idea they want to go with. Yeah. Well, the uh, both in twelve and then in thirteen, you, the the. The Bible, in, in a way, which will it also come up in Deuteronomy as well, and it's more characteristic of the language of Deuteronomy is, you know, our, our readers and listeners will, will uh, perhaps, our viewers and listeners perhaps know that Deuteronomy is a very different sort of book than the rest of, of the Torah, and its emphasis is on teaching, listening, studying. Uh, it's like the it's like Devarim invents this religion that we that we have. It primarily happens in the head and heart. Um, so, but here in Shmot in twelve and thirteen, you get some of that Deuteronomy vibe because your children are going to ask you, and you're going to recite something, and that is going to keep this sense of uh, of um, covenantal commitment. We are part of this people. This is how we know we are together. Um, you know, there's a there's a um, the, the word blood in Hebrew is just a plural word like mayim damim. Um, water is a plural word and, and blood is a plural word. And in Ezekiel, there's this passage which will be familiar to the 
you know, familiar to those who know the traditional Haggadah or the Brit Milah ritual, but Omar Lach B'damayich Chayiv, Omar Lach B'damayich Chayiv, this, this like, image of this found baby, and and God who finds the baby says, in your bloods live. What are the bloods? Dam Pesach V'dam Brit. The blood of the pa- the Passover sacrifice smeared on the walls and the blood of the covenantal ritual of Brit Milah. This is not just a religion of ideas. It's not just a religion of the Rambam. Flesh and blood. And so in these rituals, what you eat together, and for us, you know, who get who get animal products from a store and wrapped in plastic, you know, they killed the animal together. They, they there was actual physical touching of the blood. The blood was marked on the house. Um, we understand that, as, as Barry said, to be purely Pesach Mitzrayim, not Pesach Dorot, something that happened one and only one time, and not throughout history. But that kind of doesn't make a ton of sense if you just read Exodus twelve. It seems like. Um, on all the, you know, it seems like at some point it was part of the ritual, and uh, and this sense of we have been crushed and we were liberated. Uh, this is like this is how you know you're a Jew. Um, I'm thinking about this because we're always going to have the coincidence, by the way, of Martin Luther King holiday, as as happened this week, um, yesterday. As this is Tuesday, we're recording this. Uh, and these and these you know slavery in Egypt partiot, like the degree to which you know in Black American religious life, you know you're part of this people because you have suffered and because you're on this road towards liberation and and things are not exactly the same for us you know us this part of the house of Israel but I think we can really get how that works. Yeah, Darry, you have any any ideas comments just in terms of you know the these. We're we're telling a story, and and the the fact that the the Torah says we anticipate that you're going to ask questions. Well, I think that that in and of itself demands an explanation because in the language of the Torah, the child will see the parent, the father, and the Torah do something that doesn't make sense to him, and they'll say in one version or another, "Mazo, what is this?" And the parent will respond. That with a strong hand, God took me out of the land of Egypt, the house of bondage. And what will happen in the course of time is the son who says, Mazo, what is this? Is going to become the parent who says, God took me out of the land of Egypt, even though it's not quite true. Unless the father now can internalize a story and make something that happened to his father his own. And there's a powerful lesson here about redemption in the Bible, that redemption requires God, that we cannot get to where we're supposed to go without the guiding help and hand of the Almighty. And Playing on this, perhaps, is chapter 13, which is the concluding part of the Parsha, the first 16 verses, which has the other two passages that are probably less familiar to most of us that are in the Tefillin. And they mention the Tefillin, the Totafot, and Tefillin is also a sign of the exodus from Egypt, only it's worn daily, because we need a constant reminder, such as Tefillin, and that always prompts questions, especially if you ever put them on in front of people who've never seen them before. Right. Um, 
and the annual reminder, which is the holiday of Pesach. And the two work together because this theme is what I think our lives, both spiritual and material, depend upon. Indeed. Well, that's a good place to to bring this to a conclusion. And um, you know, thinking about you know this parsha, really, it's 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 the pivotal moment. It's Yitzhak Mitzrayim. They 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 are released from Egypt, and it's the epoch changing, world changing, people changing event, the redemption of our people. We pray for the redemption of our hostages and captives once again, and want to thank you for watching, for listening. We're so honored that you bring us into your lives in this Torah way. Love to hear what you have to say. Your comments, please write. If you're inclined to, you can write on Barry Barry Chesler's Facebook page. You can write on Anshay Chesed Facebook page or on the YouTube channel. And in the meantime, we want to thank you and wish you all a good Shabbat. We'll see you next week on the next edition of Parsha Shabbat. Bye, Shalom.